0: This episode of Safe Space Radio is brought to you by the Pink House Foundation and listeners like you. This is WMPG. I'm Ann Hallward, a psychiatrist in Portland, Maine, and this is Safe Space Radio, a show about the subjects we would struggle with less if we could talk about them more. Today we begin a series on PTSD among women who have served in the military. Women in the military can face threats on two fronts, from combat exposure and from sexual assault within their own unit. Today, I'll be talking with Ruth Moore, who enlisted in the Navy when she was 17. While serving overseas, she was raped by her own supervisor. In 2014, she founded Internity, an organization to help other survivors of sexual assault within the military to reconnect with themselves and their communities. Welcome to Safe Space Radio, Ruth. Hello, Anne. Thank you for having me today. Tell me a little bit about yourself before you enlisted. What was it you were hoping
1: for when you decided to enlist in the Navy? Wow, that is a long time ago, Anne. But I think the best way to sum it is I was a bright, vivacious 17-year-old girl. I was excited to get out in the world, to become a professional woman, a career woman, and develop my life so different from the way that I had grown up in the country. I grew up in a very, very small farming community in Pembroke, Maine. And the predominant occupation there was a mill at the Guilford Industries Mill. And most everybody I knew, their parents worked at Guilford Industries. And I really wanted to do something different than work in a woolen mill my whole life. Today, we've heard a lot about
0: sexual harassment in the military for women such that, you know, I think it would make me pause. It would make me really afraid to, to join the military. Um, but then, you know, the consciousness was, I don't know, What did you have any sense that you would possibly
1: be at risk when you joined? Absolutely none. I had listened to the glorious tales from my stepfather, from family members, from friends of family who served, mostly men, and I had no inkling that there was any type of danger being a woman Going into the military. So I understand that you were ultimately stationed in the Azores. Um, how did you get there? What, what was your job there? I graduated at the top of my class in the Air Weather School in Illinois, so I had the pick of where I wanted to go. And I chose the Azores Portugal because it was an exotic overseas location, and I really didn't want to go to Alaska and freeze. I came from Maine. (laughs) So I chose the Azores because it was a beautiful island chain, and it really seemed to have the old country life, and it seemed like it was ideal when I first got there. And so you were in weather, I was. What does
0: it mean? I don't know what air weather means. Like, what were you doing?
1: The 27 states of the sky. It was learning about and predicting and forecasting weather. So I was all excited to, you know, see how weather develops and the atmospheric pressures. And it was just fascinating for me. I had a scientific mind. So help me just picture where you are at this point. Are you on a base or are you in a town... The Azores is a multinational military base, mostly Portuguese, but Americans and other nationalities are in there. The American side had a club at the top of the hill. At night, we would go to the club and go out and have dinner, or we would unwind and relax. So I was up at the club, and my supervisor came up to me, and he said, I'd like to talk to you. I'd like, you know, to talk to you outside. Well being young and naive I thought well maybe he was you know appreciative of the work I was doing or maybe he wanted you know to give me some feedback I never in my life would have imagined the horror that he inflicted on me outside he didn't take me outside to talk with me he took me outside and he assaulted me Before this even happened
0: what was your relationship with him like how long had you even been working with him
1: It was a matter of weeks. And I was training for my job. So to me, this person was not just my supervisor, he was almost like a father figure, because he was responsible for ensuring that I had the basic of military structure and understanding of military command and duties and protocols. So for the relationship that we had, it was yes, sir, no, sir, thank you, sir. And it was definitely a relationship where there was a power differential, I would say a strong power differential. So I really didn't have any socialization with him other than on the job. So when I was at the club, and he came up to me, I thought that, you know, this was something, you know, that appropriate. Hey, you did a good job, you know, looking forward to seeing you tomorrow or, hey, I want you to work on this tomorrow. But that wasn't what happened. So he comes
0: up to the, at the club and he asks you if you want to talk to him outside. And you agree thinking that he's going to congratulate you and you're trusting him because he's like a father figure to you.
1: Exactly. And going in the door, there were bushes, and there were planters, and there were benches. And if you were outside, you could be in those bushes, and no one would know you were there. And with the music from the club and being dimly lit outside, it was a perfect scenario. And so
0: he literally assaults you in the bushes right outside the club? Yes.
1: Where other people could have been walking by? Yes. And the question that I get is, well, how come you didn't fight back or how come you didn't scream? First of all, I was emotionally traumatized. I I was in shock that something like that could happen. He also used a knife or a weapon and he held it against me so that if I had screamed or I had fought, I would have been killed. And understanding that the Azores is an overseas remote duty station, accidents happen. And I didn't want to be an accident.
0: So you had no sense that there was anything going to hold him back? Nothing. When it was finished, did he threaten you? Did he say anything to you about
1: not telling anyone? Yes and no. He told me that I was new. No one would believe me everyone would think that I was a slut or a whore. You know, he he really played those psychological power cards on me. But being the farm girl that I am, um, I did reach out and try to get help from the chaplain on the base. Um, And the chaplain is a religious leader, so I thought that I would be safe reporting. Unfortunately, the chaplain and the person who assaulted me were good friends. And when i did tell the chaplain he basically said that i should just forget it and move on but the chaplain had to talk with my perpetrator and he caught me coming out of my barracks room and i had the last room before the door and there was a hill right there next to the barracks. And there was a dead space, a black area, where no light could get in. And he caught me, and he assaulted me again. And he told me I should have kept my mouth shut.
0: So I'm just picturing you, 18, is so young. And you're so far from home. And I'm imagining now you feel so alone. Yeah. And even a chaplain who you... One one reasonably hopes is going to be a kind person and trustworthy.
1: Was not. I sort of, like, delivered you back into the jaws of this person. Unfortunately, that happens a lot in military structures. How do you mean? The military is a very closed organization. We would like to think that they're making progress. Stateside, they're making progress. But when you're in a remote, isolated duty station... The rules are different, even though they're the same on paper. The interactions with the personnel, the friendships, the loyalties, they're different. So I trusted when I shouldn't have trusted.
0: (laughs) So let me come back to that conversation with the chaplain, if
1: you may. Can you tell me how that conversation went? I had a strong religious upbringing, so I felt that he would be a safe person to talk to. I actually was married, but my spouse was stateside. So when I talked to the chaplain, I told him that I had been raped and that I wanted to go home to my husband. I wanted you know, to get some help. And he basically told me I should forget about it and just move on. If I wanted to have a career, just forget about it and move on. If you wanted to have a career, so what was the implication there? That if you sought treatment, that would impact your career? Yes. That is a common threat that is used for rape survivors. And in the space between
0: talking to the chaplain and the second rape, how were you making sense of what he told you? What were you thinking you were going to do? I
1: honestly didn't think it was like I was on autopilot. I couldn't focus on anything. I couldn't focus on my studies. I couldn't focus on my job. Um, I basically just went on autopilot. I walked the three miles down to the base and did my work and walked the three miles back home in the rain. And no one would... Give me a ride, no one would talk to me. Essentially, they, you know, the word gets out and they thought that I had asked for it or I was a slut or I was a problem person. So basically, the command structure and the people who I was starting to develop friendships with, they all isolated and pulled away from me in an effort to preserve their own careers or they were so horrified by the thought that they just pulled away. That, you know, so there was no support for me whatsoever.
0: So you've, you're experiencing so many things at this point. You've experienced two assaults, you've experienced you know, threats in, in the form of like, you're a slut, or this is your fault, or you must have wanted it, which is already so demeaning. And now you're ostracized.
1: Exactly. I mean, the thing that survivors go through, I can typify. The questions I were asked were, why were you even at the club? You're married. Why weren't you in your barracks room? Well, I have to eat sometime. You know, it's either barracks food or club food. I'm sorry, club food tastes better. (laughs) Um, So I make no excuses for, you know, why I was there or whatever. I refuse to be victim blamed. So much of
0: what I work with as a clinician with survivors is wrestling to in some ways unburden themselves from this fear that they were somehow to blame because the messages of being to blame are so ubiquitous coming from all these directions. Did you know that you were not to blame from the beginning or was this
1: something you arrived at from doing a lot of your own work? I honestly knew from the beginning that I was not to blame. I had no reason to be ashamed of going to the club. I was fully dressed. My dress shouldn't have mattered to begin with, but I wasn't dressed provocatively. I was a married young woman. I did nothing wrong. The only thing I can say is I was so naive and having that naivety at 18 years old is perfectly normal, so there really is no blame for the actions that were committed against me. So let's
0: keep going. So you you meet with the chaplain. He gives you this message, like, if you want to, if you're an ambitious person at all, you should just let it go and move on. You're then on autopilot. You're increasingly feeling ostracized. And then you get raped again by the same guy. Yes. Did he directly tell you that he was punishing you for having sought help?
1: No, he basically just said, I should have kept my mouth shut. It's not hard to infer. It was direct retaliation. And, you know, I, I know that there are so many people who are hearing this, and they're probably thinking and going in, you know, to their own memories. And I don't want to share the details of my rape because that's so personal. But I will say that I was so shocked and angry and betrayed afterwards, that I did the unthinkable. And I tried to commit suicide. And I thank every power that be that I was not successful. But I remember telling the chaplain and the commanding officer that they, if they did not get me off that base, I was going to swim home. I was you know, training for the atmosphere and I understood the ocean currents and it might take me a while to get there, but I was fat enough and I was going to (laughs) float. So tell me about your
0: conversation with a commanding officer.
1: Well, he said that I had had, he had had a lot of hope in me and he really tried a lot of leadership principles to shame me. To put make me complacent. So you're totally alone, you're out of contact with people,
0: and you have to report to the person who has twice violated you and scared you to death? Yes. And you became, it sounds like you
1: became absolutely hopeless. I did. I became anorexic, I tried to destroy my body any way I could to take attention away from me. I tried to take my life, and they put me in the brig. They punished me for destruction of government property. They put me in jail.
0: For government property to,
1: meaning your own body? Yes, for trying to kill myself. They put me in jail for a weekend, and they told me that that was just a taste of what, you know, troublemakers would get. I see. So two weeks later, you attempt to take your
0: life. You're put in jail for the weekend, and then what happened?
1: After I got out of the brig, as they call it, um, I really felt so used and ashamed and dirty. And understanding that I was recently married, I was a young wife, and I was just absolutely lost. And I didn't, I didn't spend my money. I was, you know, living in a barrack. So I was making really good money back then. And I had bank account and everything. And I knew that I couldn't call off base because all of the lines were monitored. It was a high communications base. It was top secret security. So I knew that anything that I said on public lines would come back. So I went off base and found a ham operator, and I paid him two months' worth of my salary. And I called back to the United States. Um, They routed me through some place and then another place. And I finally called my mother-in-law and my mother and my husband at the time. But I was terrified because I told them that I was raped, and I was terrified that they would think that it was my fault or I would be a bad person, or I was whoring around on my husband. And that wasn't the case. And when I explained that I had been raped, not once, but twice, and that I was going to come home one way or the other, that's when um, my former husband contacted Olympia Snow's office, and they sent him overseas, and he did a command investigation. And when he was doing that, command investigation, I was relieved from all duty. And unfortunately, the relations that a husband and wife are supposed to have did not happen because I had contracted chlamydia and I was in an extreme amount of pain. And that's really when they determined that I was going to be medevaced off the base and it was going to be psychiatrically done. So how does the chlamydia relate to psychiatrically they you. back in the 80s, it was real popular to blame the victim to, perfect, to um, protect the command. And they said that I had borderline personality disorder and I didn't fit in on the base. And, and you know, as a clinician, and I know as a clinician, that when someone is given a diagnosis of a borderline personality disorder, people think that you have one foot in reality and one foot in fantasy, and you don't know the difference between what's real and what's not. And there's a lot of behaviors that I didn't exhibit, but they sent me, they used that justification to take me off the base and to commit me in Bethesda Naval Hospital for months. And um, they discharged me from the military with a borderline personality disorder diagnosis, which was later recanted. I mean, the sad fact within clinical
0: circles is often the diagnosis of borderline personality disorder is made to describe someone who is viewed as a problem, very difficult. It's a, it's often used as a very dismissive yes. diagnosis. Um, in fact, we know that that diagnosis is actually related to early life trauma and is a set of symptoms that are related to trauma, but that's an aside. It was not particularly relevant to this kind of trauma, which is adult trauma. Right. So your husband comes over to make a
1: command investigation. I don't know what that is. What does that mean? He was under special investigative powers from the U.S. Senate. To investigate the rape and the cover-up? Yes. And was he able to be helpful to you in that? I believe he was because I got off the island. (laughs) (laughs) (laughs)
0: <laughs> <laughs> he he was humble in rescuing you, but not necessarily in bringing the perpetrator to justice. No. And was that command investigation tasked with
1: issuing a report, and, and did they have findings? He reported directly to um, Olympia Snow, and I honestly don't know what it had been reported at the time because I was still active duty in Bethesda when he was up here in Maine reporting to her. But I know that um, rather than trying to work with me or re- rehabilitate me or help me because no one believed I had been raped, it was easier to discharge me and protect the commanding officer of the base so that he could get his next promotion. So you report a rape and you get Medevac
0: off of the island mm-hmm. as if you are the problem. What is your sense of how... Uh, the word common doesn't seem like the right word, but, you know, how typical in some ways your story is?
1: That is a big question, Anne. That is a really big question. Um, to give you a little background, but not a lot, remember when I said I was at the top of my class? My choices were San Diego, California, Adak, Alaska, or the Azores, Portugal? The position that I refused in ADAC, Alaska, I did not know was open because of a military sexual assault. And that woman that lost that position, her name was Trina McDonald, very, very similar to my case. And I was offered her billet. And I didn't find this out until the Invisible War came out back a few years ago. And that's the documentary film. That is. And Trina and I are very good friends now. But we just, we just shake our heads in awe thinking that I could have had her position and that could have happened to me in Alaska. So this brings back your question of how prevalent is this? And 26,000 men and women are raped every year in the military. It goes up and down. But it's the, the, the general number is 26,000, and they're not reported. So think about how many who are reported. How do you get that number, 26,000? That comes from Rain, and it comes from the Service Women's Action Network. They have been pioneers in researching and presenting this data. They work with Yale Law, and they actually sued the government and the VA. But what it comes down to is... Over a period of time, through Freedom of Information Acts and through reports, um, they've ascertained that the number is approximately 26,000 men and women per year are raped in the military. You said that comes from RAIN. What's RAIN? Rape, Abuse, and Incest National
0: Network, if memory doesn't fail. And they're an organization that looks at sexual assault in civilian life as well? Yes. I see, okay. So 26,000 men and women a year. A year. So that's just not a huge number. And the vast majority of whom we know at this point still do not report.
1: And now go back two decades and do the math. That's over a half a million survivors of military sexual assault. And sexual assault in the military does not have to be just a rape, it can be sexual harassment that is escalated. Because what happens in the military structure is people are used to behaving badly. People are used to that entitled atmosphere. They Women are generally perceived as only, you know, the bad girls go in the military. And we're going back two to three generations, but this is where this foundation came in. And then you look at the age of the perpetrators. And a lot of the perpetrators back then are supervisors now of their career military so when we're looking at the military organization, it's a closed society. It is a society that protects its own. It's entirely male-dominated. And men from time beginning have had the entitlement atmosphere. There is literally no checks and balances like in the civilian world. Right, so you have this closed society that functions
0: To protect its own and pathologize, punish, and blame the victims. Exactly.
1: I mean, women survivors of sexual assault more often than not are persecuted. Like me, they're thrown in jail. They're ostracized. Or even worse, they're prosecuted for committing adultery. You if can they, prosecute someone for adultery in the military. Yes, if the if their attacker is married, they can be prosecuted for laying charges against their attacker for committing adultery. And the command structure will do that because it's if you look at the dollars and cents, it's easier to get rid of the the new person, the E one or E two recruit. Because they haven't spent that much money training them or whatever, versus an E6 or an E7 supervisor who if they've spent hundreds of thousands of dollars in specialty schools and training, it's easier to get rid of the victim. All right. So let me understand something
0: here. So married man in the military with seniority rapes a younger, recent recruit, and she's prosecuted for it. Meanwhile, he participated is he also prosecuted for adultery
1: no help me understand that what's the what is the justification for that it's the command structure protecting the senior enlisted everybody knows you know, John Doe, they know he's such a squared away soldier. He has done nothing but positive things to help the command. He really preserved the command integrity. He's helped advance the mission of the military. And then you have, you know, Jane Doe, who has said that he's raped her. Such a fine, upstanding gentleman would not do that. She's making it up for attention. That's the sarcastic approach that is frequently used for survivors. It's so chilling. It is.
0: And also, it's really terrifying. I mean, I'm picturing you on this remote island, so ostracized, so blamed. Thank goodness you were resourceful enough to go find a ham radio operator. I mean, many. it's terrifying to think what could have happened if you were stuck there longer.
1: Many aren't so lucky. Many turn to alcohol or drugs. They self-medicate, and then again, they're prosecuted for alcoholism or drug possession, and then they're kicked out that way. It's a never-ending cycle of abuse. They're either prosecuted for adultery, or they're prosecuted for substance abuse, or they're prosecuted for diminished job performance, and they're booted. There is no one rationale. the, The whole mission is get the person out that causes the problem. Any way you can.
0: That was part one of my interview with Ruth Moore. Next week we'll be airing the second half of our conversation in which we talk about the work that she's doing to help create an easier path for others who have experienced military sexual trauma. If you like this show and want to stay connected to these issues, you can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Safe Space Radio. You can find all of our past episodes at safespaceradio.com. While you're there, subscribe to our email list if you want to find out about each week's new show as soon as it's released. Also, leave us a comment. I'd love to hear from you. My thanks to Gabe Graben for producing the show and to Jim Russell for being our editorial advisor.